Listen to the word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So reads the Word of God. After teasing others last Sunday for moving too slowly through Romans, the very first move that I have made in this series is to slow down. Rather than covering the whole introduction this week of 1, 1 to 17 as we had planned, I decided on Friday morning to do only the personal greeting, verses 1 through 7. There are just such deep theological affirmations here and clarifications of the person of, of the Lord Jesus Christ that I didn't want to rush through them and I didn't want to risk the opportunity of returning to them at some future point when they, these same sorts of affirmations appear again in the text. So it seemed the best thing to do was pause and just let them soak in a bit because this is the foundation of the letter it's the reason this letter has become such a treasured possession to the church throughout the centuries, and the foundation is being laid for Paul, by Paul right here in his opening greeting. Let's look into this text then and just appreciate the rich luster of what Paul is communicating from his opening words written to these brothers and sisters whom he'd never met. I see five parts just in the opening greeting of this letter, this introduction, we might say, and you can see that outline there in your bulletin. That's what we'll use this morning, just moving really quickly through each one of these sections to appreciate what Paul is saying here. We first of all have the apostle himself in verse 1, then the gospel in verse 2, we might even say the historic gospel. We have the Savior reflected on in verses 3 and 4 with a parallel statement that we'll talk about as we get there. Then we have the aim of this letter, what Paul hopes will be brought about through it in verse 5. And finally then, we have the audience in verses 6 and 7. So those are the five parts I see in this passage, and those are the ones we'll work through just, um, as I said, rather quickly this morning. So first of all, the apostle in verse 1. Paul's letters 
are a bit of an anomaly in the ancient world. They are, they are far longer than any other letters that we have from that period of history, even though as you study them, they do follow the typical letter form of that day. They are just much longer, especially here in Romans, which is his longest letter of the 13 that he wrote that are included in our New Testament. It also has this, this greatly expanded opening, 17 verses in the opening introduction of Paul to Romans. Typically, in a first century letter, it would open just essentially saying, from me to you, greetings. That's the whole thing. And then the letter has a, a very brief expression and then a typical closing of uh, wishing something like, like Paul wishes here, grace and peace or something of that sort. But it really is, that, that opening is just saying my name, saying your name, so that from the beginning of a letter you know who it's from and who it's to, and an opening greeting. But here, Paul takes six verses just to say, from me. That's one of the reasons that we slow down when we get to Romans. Six verses to cover what was typically covered in a first century letter, just saying, from Daryl, or from me to you. That's worth pausing and saying, what, what's Paul doing here? What's he saying? This this letter is typical, but atypical, all at the same time. Now, surely this lengthy introduction, as most agree, is due to the fact that he hadn't met this church prior. And so he wanted them to know how he perceived himself, how he perceived his calling, what he was doing in writing to them. Important, almost certainly... They were somewhat familiar with him, but not by personal experience. And so he's filling in gaps, perhaps righting some wrongs, perhaps deepening some perceptions, whatever. But he's spending some time with this church so that they'll know who he is. As I said, almost certainly they would have known Saul of Tarsus. They would have heard his story by now because it had been a couple decades prior, even more than that. They had known that he had been a persecutor of the church who had then become the Apostle Paul, preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles, and that all of that had happened through the dramatic and personal interruption of his life by Jesus himself as he was traveling to Damascus to persecute the church even further. So they would have known something of his life. We can read about that in Acts 9 and a couple of more times in the book of Acts, in fact, the testimony of the Apostle Paul and how he came to saving faith and of the fact that from his very conversion on that day, he was not just called into saving relationship with God in Christ, he was called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and part of Jesus' testimony was that he would show him how much he must suffer for the name. And so we are getting set up here to understand how Paul's suffering was used by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He considered himself, Paul did, as a servant of Christ Jesus. 
We can see that there in verse 1. A servant, a, a doulos, a, a slave, totally devoted to and at the disposal of his Lord. That's his opening description of himself, a servant of Christ Jesus. And his unique service involved being, also verse 1, called to be an apostle, one of those messengers who is an eyewitness to the risen, resurrected Christ, set apart for the gospel of God. That's what we've said already from his conversion. And this is why he would say he is set apart for the gospel of God. As he wrote to the Corinthians, he said, woe to me. That's judgment language. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I have been called by Christ to this ministry, and his judgment will be upon me if I don't fulfill my ministry. Paul is getting the Roman church acquainted with that level of self-understanding and conviction through the work of the Spirit in his life. This was his calling to preach the gospel, his unique and undeniable purpose in life. That's the apostle. As to the gospel he preached, on to verse 2, it was the gospel of God, he said, as verse 1 was coming to a conclusion, and then he expanded on that in verse 2, saying, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I love that. We said a moment ago that we might even title this section the historic gospel, and that is because it is rooted in the history of the Scriptures and of God's revelation to His people. And Paul, in one brief verse, the, 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 one of the shortest verses in this section, added in that particular characteristic of the gospel. The gospel of God, verse 2, which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This gospel wasn't new. This gospel wasn't designed on the fly. This isn't the God of all creation just sort of thinking on his feet and coming up with a plan B. This gospel has been the purpose of God from the very beginning. This gospel was known in the mind of God before His decree to create the world and His statement, let there be light. This is the eternal plan and purpose of God beginning to be realized. And this word itself, the gospel, the good news, comes out of various Old Testament passages. Perhaps one of the, the most familiar to us, Isaiah 52 Verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings the good news, the gospel, who publishes peace, the very peace with which Paul greeted the Romans in verses 6 and 7, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This is the good news that the Scriptures and the prophets talked about, and it was a rich expectation among God's people, the Jews, in the first century as Jesus came to earth. 
Did they recognize him for who he was? And we can read about that in John's gospel. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. By and large, they didn't. But this early church was made up of Jews and Gentiles together. So some did. Some were anticipating the coming of Messiah to the point where they recognized Jesus to be that promised one. But make no mistake, this good news that Paul is called to preach, this gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, runs right through our Old Testament Scriptures such that as we read the book still today, we anticipate the fulfillment of those promises in the one who was sent. God's people have been looking forward to this good news, the gospel, for a long, long time. Now, Paul is preaching the fulfillment of God's faithful purpose in saving his people. So there's the apostle. There's the gospel. How about the Savior next? Verses 3 and 4. The focal point of Paul's preaching is, verse 3, God's Son who is descended from David according to the flesh. This seems to be a, a clear reference to the fact that Jesus is that long-anticipated Messiah who had been promised on the pages of the prophets and the Old Testament Scriptures. Born into the physical line of David, he says here, just as Old Testament Scripture promised in so many places and so many ways, surely not least among them, 2 Samuel 7 and the promise that David would have a son who would sit on his throne forever. And as Romans begins, Paul is talking to this body of believers about the fact that Jesus is that one. He's talking to them not as though they didn't have any understanding of this, but as though they needed this foundation in order to appreciate all that he was going to say in the following words and paragraphs. So Jesus was the long-anticipated Messiah born into the physical line of David. But Jesus Christ our Lord, as he's referred to here, he was more than just that. And it was about at this point on Friday morning that I decided, you know what, we, we've got we to linger with these first seven verses for a little bit longer. Because of what's being said about Jesus. When we say that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah, born into the line of David in fulfillment of Old Testament promises, we're ready to move on to the next portion of the outline. Paul isn't. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus Christ our Lord was more than just that. You're not going to find out who Jesus is by reading the familiar Old Testament passages about the coming Messiah and then just plugging Jesus into that and not recognizing what was actually accomplished as he came to earth fulfilled his calling to go to the cross, rise again from the dead and ascend back to the Father and to see what that experience added to the understanding of this promised Messiah from the Old Testament Scriptures. 
It's that part that the Jews would have been largely missing such that they didn't recognize the specialness of who Jesus was and embrace him as Messiah. Again, from human, from the human side. Trying to explain the unbelief of Israel at this stage of history, what they were missing was what Jesus actually did when he came as Messiah, what he accomplished and what was achieved by it. So Jesus Christ our Lord was more than just the long-anticipated Messiah born into David's line. Verse 4, he also was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Let me read that again. Listen to how that's worded. Some translations translate that word declared differently. But declared is probably the best translation of that word. He was also declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Glorious as this statement is, it can also be confusing to us if we listen to it carefully. It makes it sound like Jesus perhaps wasn't considered to be the Son of God until after his resurrection from the dead, and it was at that point where he was declared to be the Son of God. And there are some in our world today, some in the world going all the way back to the time where this was written, who want to say that that's the case. They don't believe in the eternal sonship of Christ, the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh. They think he became the Son of God through the work that he did for our salvation. So what do we make of that? How are we supposed to hear this? It's not at all unlike the passage in Psalm 2 that we heard preached from this pulpit just a few weeks back, where we read in verse 7, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And there's something in us that says, really? Today you have begotten him? So the son of God is not eternally begotten? Well, no, that's not how we hear it. That's one of the reasons we need to pause, slow down, and understand who we're talking about here. Pastor Nick did an excellent job in our Advent series helping us to see how this language in Psalm 2 was used to celebrate the ascension to the throne of each successive king in Israel. This is how that was celebrated. In a unique way, as, as the chosen one in Israel was rising to the throne, he was recognized to be the Son of God, representative of Israel who was the Son of God, and now he being king over them. So it was ascension language celebrating the arrival of a new king, but it was also at the same time spoken ultimately of the promised Messiah who would sit on that throne for all eternity. The son of David and the unique son of God, it was already anticipating that they were speaking about more than just the historic king at that time and place, but the ultimate king that was still coming. Psalm 2 is understood to be a messianic psalm, looking forward to the fulfillment of the promise that was made to David in 2 Samuel 7 that we just referred to a moment ago. 
So with that in mind, that sets a little bit of context for how we understand this morning that he's declared to be the Son of God according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Verses 3 and 4 here that are talking about the Savior are laid out as a parallel set of expressions, making it possible that that they were some early hymn or some early theological formation that people would repeat to themselves to, to help them begin to reflect on, meditate on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the uniqueness of who He was as both God and man. Verses 3 and 4, do you remember them? Concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. Do you hear the parallelism there talking about His human and divine nature, perhaps? But talking about it in language that we need to pause and reflect on in order to appreciate fully what's being said. So in verses 3 and 4, we see them laid out as parallel expressions, making them perhaps something that's being quoted from an early hymn or theological formation, but also notice first in this description that Jesus is called the Son before He was declared to be the Son. He was called the Son in verse 3, so it was the Son of God who was declared to be the Son of God in power. It wasn't as though He isn't eternally the Son of God. He was already the Son when He was recognized in a new and distinct way. That's what verses 3 and 4 are giving us. So He was the Son, but now He is declared to be the Son in some new and powerful way through His death and resurrection. That's what Paul is telling the Romans. He's telling them that through the salvation that Jesus provided for, the salvation that He delivered in His flesh, He has entered into a new role or He's recognized in a new way that He wasn't recognized in prior to that. Something real has happened as the second person of the Trinity has taken on flesh and come into this world and died on the cross and risen again and ascended back to the Father in His promised return. Something is being taken, has taken place. I love the descriptions of Doug Moo, and I told you last week that I'll be quoting him a number of times through this series. But this is really helpful language to pick this up, and I didn't want to rework it as though it were my own because I believe that he has unique insight in how he has worded this. This is clearly a crafted description that Moo gives. Listen. He said, by virtue of his obedience to the will of the Father... We're talking about Jesus, let that sink in. By virtue of His obedience to the will of the Father, that we read about in Philippians 2 and other places, and because of His eschatological, or we'll just say because of the end times revelation of God's saving power that is being talked about here, the salvation of Christ that will be fully and finally delivered upon His return, by virtue of these two things, The Son attains a new, exalted status as Lord. That's actually what Paul was talking about in Philippians 2, that very familiar passage. The Son attains a new, exalted status as Lord. Son of God from eternity, He becomes Son of God in power. Now to borrow the language from Hebrews 7, 
able to save completely those who come to God through him. So by virtue of his obedience to the will of the Father and because of the end times revelation of God's saving power in the gospel, the Son attains a new exalted status as Lord, Son of God from eternity, becomes Son of God in power, able to save completely those who come to God through him. So Mu continues, the transition from verse 3 to verse 4 then is not a transition from a human Messiah to a divine Son of God. It's a transition from the Son as Messiah to the Son as both Messiah and powerful reigning Lord. The missing piece has been added. And Paul's done it in his introduction just by talking about Jesus. He's showing us what's absent in the understanding of Israel with regard to who Jesus is. They missed the transition from Son of God, Messiah, to Son as both Messiah and powerful reigning Lord, saving Lord. Then this final description here of the Son, according to the spirit of holiness, the only time Paul uses this language, in fact, the only time this language appears even in our New Testament, adding in according to the spirit of holiness, which stands as the contrast to according to the flesh in verse 3, so finishing that parallel statement, we talked on Christmas Day about the two realms of this world. Do you remember that? We were talking from Ephesians, or I'm sorry, from Rome. Romans chapter 5, verse 18. We're talking about the two different realms in this world. The realm of death, of sin, the realm of the flesh, inherited through Adam, and the realm of life, the realm of righteousness, the realm of the Spirit, inherited through Christ. That's the contrast that lies at the heart of this letter. In the second half of chapter 5, I believe Paul is introducing that contrast right here in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's introducing it right here in the opening greeting by contrasting the, the complementary descriptions of who Jesus is. In Jesus' earthly life, in his life in the realm of the flesh, we might say, coming to us in our sin, in Jesus' earthly life, he was the Davidic seed. He was born into the line of David, David's physical line, qualifying him to be king in Israel. In his earthly life, he was the Davidic seed, the Messiah. But while true and valuable, this does not tell the whole story about who Jesus is. For us, for Christians, Jesus is also in the realm of the Spirit. He's in both of these two realms that Romans 5 talks about as still being our experience that by the time we get to Romans 7 are at war with one another in our hearts. Those are those two realms. Jesus has presence in both. So for Christians, Jesus is also not just in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, the powerful, life-giving Son of God. In Christ, the new era of redemptive history has begun. End-time salvation has broken into this present world, 
and is changing us from death unto life. In Christ, the new era of redemption history has begun, and in this new stage of God's plan, Jesus reigns as Son of God, powerfully active to bring salvation to all who believe. He has entered time and space, not just as some sort of a theological formality, but as a genuine saver of souls, come to rescue from death unto life, to save as many who believe. He is a real Savior who has a full presence in both worlds. That's the Savior whom we serve. So what does His salvation look like? That's where we get to the aim in verse 5. What does His salvation look like? What does His historic gospel Paul is called to preach accomplish in those who receive it? Well, its defining characteristic in them is identified here and in the closing words as we read last Sunday. The defining characteristic in them is called the obedience of faith. That's what this salvation is supposed to bring about in us. That's the change that's supposed to happen in us as a result of the work that Christ is doing. It's a description that brackets this letter as the practical outcome, the, the, the proving fruit of the grace and apostleship that Paul received through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the authenticating work in the recipients. It's the obedience of faith. So what does this mean, the obedience of faith? This is such an important question because this description plays such a key role in the anchoring of both ends of this letter to the Romans. This is what the experience of the believer is supposed to look like. This is what gives us testimony to the fact that the gospel has actually taken root among us. The obedience of faith is produced in us. So what does it mean, the obedience of faith? Well, let me give you a couple of things that it doesn't mean, or I would say a couple of things that it does mean, but again, it's not the full picture. One of the reasons we slowed down this morning to understand the person and work of Christ and to understand the obedience of faith, which is His work in us. So let me just say that the obedience of faith is more than just an obedience that is born of faith or an obedience that's motivated by faith, as though it's just describing the Christian life of obedience that follows on our profession of faith in Christ. Surely it is that, but that doesn't get at the heart of what Paul's talking about here with the obedience of faith. That surely happens. But it's not the heart of it. It's also more than just an obedience that is defined as faith, as though faith and obedience are talking about the same thing, as though we can speak of obedience simply as a walk of faith, although there's nothing wrong with that statement as such either. It just doesn't get the fullness of what I believe Paul is saying here. So it's not just the obedience that's born of or motivated by faith, and it's not just the obedience that's, that's sort of the expression of faith. 
I believe the obedience of faith is actually describing more than either of these. Rather, we understand the words obedience and faith to be mutually interpreting of one another. Both of them add something to this description that is absent without its presence. Obedience always involves faith, Doug Moo wrote, and faith always involves obedience. However, this does not mean that the two terms should be equated with one another or that their definitions even overlap. Paul maintains a distinction in the definition between faith on the one hand and obedience or works on the other. They're two separate categories, but they flow together in the, as the fruit of salvation when we embrace Christ by faith. Faith and obedience should not be equated or compartmentalized or made into separate stages of Christian experience, faith and obedience go together from the very beginning, our receiving of saving faith and our living out of it. Obedience and faith stand side by side, equal and necessary contributors at the same time. Paul called men and women to a faith that was always inseparable from obedience because the Savior in whom we believe is nothing less than our Lord. And he called them to an obedience that could never be divorced from faith. For we can obey Jesus as Lord only when we've given ourselves to him by faith. At that point, Moo quotes Karl Barth, and I find this very helpful. As Barth puts it, faith is not obedience, but as obedience is not obedience without faith, and faith is not faith without obedience, they belong together as do thunder and lightning in a thunderstorm. They come together. Viewed in this light, the phrase, the obedience of faith, captures the full dimension of Paul's apostolic task. The task that was not confined to initial evangelization. He's not just there sharing the gospel and then leaving them alone to figure out what it looks like. But it included also the building up and firm establishment of the churches. So what he is teaching them is a faith that produces obedience and an obedience that's born of faith such that these two categories work together in the life of the believer from the very time the Spirit begins opening their eyes to their need for salvation until the time that they step into the presence of the Lord at the end of this life. An obedience that depends on faith and a faith that always shows itself in obedience, but in such a way that each has its own dramatic and undeniable content working together in the life of a believer. It's describing the miracle of our salvation that can produce that sort of heart in rebellious, fallen, spiritually dead sinners. If we want to understand what it looks like when the heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh, the obedience of faith describes that. 
When new covenant promises take over in our hearts and transform us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, it's obedience of faith that indicates that, that describes it, that shows it. It is the characteristic life of the believer to the point where that's the, that's the task that Paul was pursuing. He's preaching the gospel in order to produce the obedience of faith in the hearers. And this task we, re we read here in verse 5, extended to all the nations. It doesn't mean that Paul would visit every single nation, but that he was called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles beyond the Jews. He's preaching it to the nations. This salvation that came through the Jews is now available to people from every tribe and language and nation on earth. We can be grateful for that, can't we? Because here we sit 20 centuries later, the nations. Verses 6 and 7, actually verse 7 first and then verse 6, because I think it works well that way. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ was being extended into the very recognized capital of the nations in Rome in that day. Extended through the preaching of Paul. Verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So with regard to the audience, no mistaking, God has people in this city identified to be recipients of his grace and peace. Do you recognize the significance of those words to an audience that had Jews and Gentiles together among them and they were figuring out what the salvation looks like to both peoples of God? Grace and peace, Paul's greeting, our title this morning, is spotlighting Hesed and Shalom, two glorious words from Israel's scriptures. Chesed, the, the, the grace of God, the, the, the loving kindness of God, the, the steadfast saving love of God, the full expression of the blessings of God upon those who believe, chesed, grace, and peace, shalom, universal flourishing, the fruit of the gospel once it takes root in the hearts and lives of people, producing a shalom that is heavenly, and not just because it's an anticipation of heaven, but because it's the inbreaking of heaven into the present reality. That's the greeting that Paul finally gives to this body once he gets through his six verses of saying, from me. Well, this is the to you. And the greeting he offers is grace and peace. That grace and peace from God, my friends, has continued advancing through the nations ever since then. Ever since Paul wrote them to this Roman church. Advancing through the nations Producing the obedience of faith in all who believe. In that sense, this letter is written to us as much as to that first century Roman church. 
And my friends, when the gospel of grace and peace breaks in to a people and produces the obedience of faith, that's how you can tell where the true gospel has taken root. I said that we want to go on our way rejoicing in our salvation this morning. Well, this is how and why we can do it. When God's grace and peace break in among a people to produce the obedience of faith, that's where you can tell that the true gospel is active. It brings about the obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus' name, so in exaltation of the Savior who provided it. That's the visible, observable, relational manifestation of God's grace and peace among us, His chesed and shalom. It's the obedience of faith. Do you see those present? Do you see those qualities present in our relationships as a body of believers? Do you? Do you see them in our, in our care for one another? Do you see them in our welcome of strangers in this place? Our passion for the gospel and for the truth of God's word, do you see the presence of God's chesed and shalom bringing about the obedience of faith that unites a body of believers in each of those expressions, relational care for one another, welcome of outsiders, passion for gospel truth and the truth of God's word. I see them among us. I'm confident you do as well. We rejoice in those. We rest in them. It, it, it's indication, just as we prayed earlier, that God is active among us because you can't bring about this sort of thing by human experience and by human power and by the, the, the uh, implementation of some sort of a strategy among us. It doesn't work like that. This can only happen through changed hearts that have been reconciled to a true and living God with their sin and stain removed in anticipation of the coming day. And even while we continue to wrestle with the realm of death and flesh and sin, we actually know the presence of life and righteousness and spirit. And yeah, it rages hot and heavy in our hearts, just as Paul talks about in Romans 7, and we'll get there. But there's no, un, there's no denying the fact that the presence of that battle indicates the inbreaking of spirit and righteousness and life. And we see it and we rejoice in it. Amen? The obedience of faith produced among us through the powerful gospel of the true and living God in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I praise God for every sight of that quality among us, that testimony to the presence of the true gospel. It's a supernatural work that only God can achieve. And so I finish with a question. Does it bring joy to your heart when you see it, let's pray toward that end.
And even as we do, let's have the musicians return to the platform and those who will help serve communion join me at the front. Heavenly Father, this is truly a great and glorious salvation that we celebrate together, and it is so because it is a great and glorious Savior who has provided it. Father, I'm so thankful for Paul's careful wording of this opening greeting to this church, surely establishing the foundation for their relationship together, but also, Father, blessing each generation of the church ever since with a full and rich and deep appreciation of what's actually being accomplished through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes into this world and does all the work needful for our salvation. And oh, Father, I pray that as we are moved in our hearts toward this obedience of faith, may we give worship and praise to you who can give such gifts to men and women and boys and girls. And as we experience it together as the body of Christ, Father, may we be rejoicing in our hearts and moved toward corporate worship and thanksgiving that not only can you reconcile individual sinners to yourself, but you can reconcile us to one another such that joy and the life of the Spirit are, are accomplished among us to the praise of your Son. And now, Father, as we remember his death and resurrection that has accomplished all of this, I pray that we might even be united and identified as your people once again such that worship and praise is awakened in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.